0: SONIC STATES do call
1: so, hello everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk number 154, uh, recording at 4pm uh, UK time on Wednesday the 18th of November. If you're in the live chat room listening to the live stream, uh, you'll obviously be hearing all this in its unedited version and all a bit of chit-chat beforehand. I was playing a bit of Krautrock before the show, because uh, that's one of our topics. Uh, and also, you might be pleased to know that I've uh, taken one of the suggestions from last week, which I think might be been Rich and a couple of people in the chat room, um, that uh, we published the show notes. So I sent out a link on Twitter, and I've put it in the chat room as well. Well, I'll uh, just paste it in again because people are joining all the time. Um, and uh, so that means people can, you know, take a look at w- what sort of topics we've got on the list and, you know, maybe contribute or whatever, whatever they'd like to do. So once again, thank you everybody for joining us uh, in the live chat room. It's sonicstate.com forward slash live. Good Lord, I think Scarby's here. That's what he said. Guest 428 says, Scarby here. Does that mean Scarby as in um, Thomas you know, Scarby? Thomas Scarby. Ooh, we're honoured. Hello, Thomas, if that's you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm afraid we're not talking about any of your instruments today, but uh, we have done in the past. Maybe that's why you're here. Anyway, um, so that voice you just heard there was PJ Tracy uh, from PJTracyMusic.com, uh, Emmy-winning composer, studio owner, and all-around sort of general art, and you've been doing loads of grant writing and stuff. Is that all, all done now? Are you still in the thick of it?
2: Uh, predominantly finished, yeah.
1: Okay. Do you have yep. to do kind of fancy layouts and you know, get into all that sort of word business or is it, uh, is it mostly a pitch?
2: It's, it's not so much fancy layouts. It, it, there's a lot of trying to figure out for the specific grant what the right kind of wording is. You know the, the way to sort of cou- to couch your resume and what it is that you've done in the past and pitch it in a way that, that makes them comfortable with you. Right. So it's 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 interesting. I'm I'm not very good at it personally. I've got I've got people around me that that are much much better at it than I am. So they help they help me to tailor what it is that I'm doing. And I'm wor- I'm working uh, in tandem with a couple of other people, so that makes it a little a little easier for me. But my job is, um, you know, I do I do do some of the writing, but my job is mostly to put together our work samples and get them in respectable formats and right. Uh, yeah. So. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting process and I'm just getting ready to, I've had to uh, remix audio for a couple of different uh, venues. So we've got uh, my uh, animation partner and I have uh, some videos that are going on to public television this winter and then into, I think I may have mentioned they're going into kind of our um, premiere art museum here modern art museum is called the walker art center and they're going into these little video kiosks so i've been um, making sure that everything translates well for headphones
1: the the details for different applications of music within sort of there's so many ways in which it can you can kind of forge a, a pathway through it isn't there it's just sort of it's never it's never ceases to amaze me how many different ways it can be you can you can work using music and with audio and what have you yeah, and of- these
2: days I mean at least in, you know, in in the, in the way that I work, it's very important to stay active in a lot of different areas. Otherwise, sure. you know, one one falls down at a certain time and another has to stand up to take its place.
1: Uh, well, uh, thanks for joining us pjtracymusic.com uh, to check out all things PJ. Uh, I will also say hello to Mr. Dave Spears, G4 Software. Uh, maker of fine musical instruments, uh, no doubt uh, moving closer and closer to the uh, impending Namness that is going to be happening in January with the, all the pressures and uh, deadlines that that entails. Am I right? Nam. Yeah.
0: What's that?
1: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> if only... I'm feeling very good at the moment. I've got quite a lot of things sorted out. I've felt sorted out my phone cam kind of thing. I've now figured out how to upload the uh, a video from my Nokia and... Uh, you know, press a couple of buttons and it turns it into a flash video, creates a poster frame with an overlay, you know, and sticks a a, a Sonic State bug in the corner, all that stuff. I'm very pleased with myself. I feel quite uh, quite accomplished. All all on bash command line, I have to say. Very cool. Yeah. Get me and my um, dull coding <laughs> existence. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, um, how are you, Dave? You're well? I'm
0: okay, yes.
1: Oh, you're saying um, your ear flared, flared up again.
0: It did. It flared up last night. It came out of the studio and it was like, ah. So oh, yes, I'm neurofend up to the eyeballs at the minute. Does that mean you can't sleep or do you? Uh... Uh, I kind of, I did go, in fact, I fall asleep really quickly, which is something that doesn't happen normally when when I'm kind of ill. I think it sort of fatigues me to the point where I just kind of go, that's it. I'm out cold. Um, but I woke up this morning thinking, Okay, is it there or is it better? And it was still there, so. Oh, that's,
1: a, that's a very unfortunate. Uh, well, I, I fortunately last night we've um, Jane, uh, my partner, sawed up our sofa a couple of months ago because uh, she was sort of wanted to generate some action in terms of getting a new sofa, and we finally got one last night. And I put two two IKEA flat pack sofas together before tea, and then spent the rest of the night just lying on them, watching Telly mm. in a monosyllabic <laughs> kind of grunt drinking brandy it was fantastic because it's been (laughs) such a long time it's been such a long time since since i've been able to do that so yeah that's
0: quite an extreme way of making sure you get a new sofa
1: yeah well it worked (laughs) (laughs) rich hilton of course we all know about rich hilton rich hilton's a internationally renowned music producer engineer player all sorts of things years of experience the bee's knees and all that sort of thing
3: how are you rich I'm good. I I, I would actually trade mine for the bee's knees right about now. Would you? Are you having trouble with yours? I'd like my old knees back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is that old knees or young knees back?
3: Well, you know, the ones I had before. (laughs) Okay. Hey, we've got um,
1: Thomas Scarby in the chat room, by the way. I think um, you know him personally. Is that right, Rich?
3: Oh, you couldn't find a finer fellow.
1: Well, I'm very pleased to have him. There as well, Uh, and well, I guess I can plug the fact that um, it's the uh, sonicstate.com forward slash live, 4pm on a Wednesday is where you can find all these various luminaries hanging out and chatting away as they listen to us warbling away um, via Skype. That's just the way the show works. I didn't. That's not a very good hard sell, is it? A description of the <laughs> of what happens here, but that's kind of the general gist of it. Anyway, um, myspace. dot forward slash hiltonius for all your hiltonius needs. So, um, should we jump right? Oh, actually, I wanted to say something. I got because we we covered Eric Archer's space rocker machines, uh, Andromeda space rockers, which are those kind of uh, infrared drum machines, which are really interesting. And uh, he actually wrote me an email because um, when he when he downloaded the podcast, he was very pleased to have been featured and uh, he said uh, his inspiration for the Andromeda Space Rockers was actually and this is great a Buck Rogers episode titled Space Rockers in it a popular rock band Andromeda is manipulated by an evil record producer who subliminally encodes violence into their music their instruments are totally insane 1980s disco's concepts and in fact I looked at the clip he uh, he sent it was absolutely brilliant and um yeah the opening sequence on YouTube pretty much sums it up
0: how cool was that <laughs> Mutt Lang, I
1: think that was the producer, right?
0: Ah, okay.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, really? Yeah. What, Buck <laughs> <No>. Rogers? <laughs> Should have right. been. Should have been. <laughs> anyway, thank, thanks, thanks for the heads up, Eric. And it was good to know because I think I was just uh, casting aspersions on maybe he named it cynically so it would show up in search engine results. But actually, I think that's by far away one of the coolest reasons to name anything. Definitely. Anything with Buck Rogers in is fine by me.
4: If you've listened to pop music in the last five years, then it's more than likely you've heard autotune.
0: But you Somewhere in
4: Antara's autotune is a pitch correction plugin that's used to fix a singer's off-key vocals. It was designed by a former Exxon engineer named Andy Hildebrand, who was using sound waves to locate oil reserves under the sea floor. Hildebrand realized that the same autocorrelation technique used to find oil could also be used to correct a singer's unruly notes. And in 1997, he released Auto-Tune to the World as a software plugin for audio editing. At first, the software would be used sparingly to fix the occasional off-pitch sound. But in 1998, the producers of Cher's hit song Believe would be the first to use Auto-Tune as an obvious vocal effect, producing a robotic, techno-y sound. The producers went to great lengths to hide their off-label use of Auto-Tune, telling people that they had used a vocoder or a talk box. Well,
1: that was a clip from the Rocket Boom piece, which was actually a really interesting, just kind of general um, piece on you know the the, the auto tune, which we've talked about in numerous occasions before. So I won't necessarily concentrate on that. But um, uh, one thing it does say it's, uh, it's what is basically it's asking what a meme is, and I didn't actually know, so I thought I would uh, tell you this definition first of all. A meme is a cultural unit which could be an idea or value or pattern of behaviour that is passed from one person to another by non genetic means as by imitation. In case you were wondering... Yeah. but there was uh, i don't know if everybody got a chance to watch it but i thought there there's some really you know it was uh, a humorous kind of piece but there were some very interesting observational points and one was an uh, interesting point made about the overuse of new technology and they mentioned uh, that stereo when it first came was plagued by ridiculous kind of left and right panning and all this sort of thing outside of the the, the, the straight technical need needs to actually separate instruments it was sort of well overdone you know for quite some time and i thought ah well that's that's an interesting thing to hold on to as well as well as you know the, the fact that it was an interesting documentary but i thought that filled that 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 was quite an interesting point and i wondered whether or not um anybody else uh could think of other you know technological fads that have been massively overused that you know and um uh, in any way i thought it might be a kind of interesting point of discussion so uh, i don't know rich i guess you might uh, you might have some ideas on that or do you agree or what how do you feel about it
3: well as far as the video goes it was very entertaining and i enjoyed it um, as far as the historical presentation goes, it skips a huge period of years before you got to share after it was introduced, during which people, during which time people were using it, but trying like heck to not make it show.
1: Yeah. Well, they mentioned that that there was in it like very briefly,
3: <laughs> <laughs> very briefly, sure. because that's like a period of six, eight, nine years there. I mean, I beta tested auto tune as a matter of fact, and uh-huh. I used to know Andy Hildebrand and, uh it um it we it, it was fun, I enjoyed it, and uh it is one I mean, I understand why it goes the way it goes because the most significant event in the appearance of autotune was that share record, yeah where they willingly did that which we all fought mightily to avoid. I was using things before autotune to do this to do the same thing i mean it. The auto tune was just the next hammer. It wasn't the first hammer, anyway. Yeah. But now people kind of know about it because of these various events that have happened. It, it's like the a like, brand, this, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes. In the in the sense that it's become a generic, uh, a product name has become a generic for you know yeah. for a tissue. Yeah, here in America, quite often people refer to a tissue as a Kleenex. Kleenex.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, same. I, I don't. That's got a term, hasn't it? I don't know what it's called,
3: but. Um They've got that. <laughs> Whatever right. it is. But I think my, the important thing is I enjoyed the video. It was fun.
1: Yeah, it's interesting about that. The, because uh, I, well, I think we did, I, I do mention, remember quoting uh, that thing about Andy Hildebrand. And it's just remem- reminded me of somebody else. Because uh, Ian Stanley, who's a very sort of famous uh, 80s pop producer, did a lot of Tears for Fears, uh, Aha, you know, various other people. He actually started life as uh, a, a in the oil industry. And I think he was tasked, the, 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 the story goes, I don't know whether it's true or not, that he was tasked with uh, finding oil. And he just, he wasn't really kind of tremendously qualified for that particular job. And he just totally fluked it and put his finger in a map in the hope that it would work. And it just, <laughs> and it just did, which kind of set him up on his path to music production because presumably he made a bunch of money out of it. But I just thought it was a great, uh, an interesting parallel. And I don't know why uh, that came up. But
0: uh, so anyway, um, I don't know, Dave Spears. Uh, other technological advances which have been overused?
1: There are I don't a few know. Um,
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, No, 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 19? Scratching? <laughs> yeah. God, yeah, blimey, when all that came out, that was insane. I mean, they did mention scratching on the video, which I did think was brilliant, actually. It did make me laugh a lot. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a fan of double tracking, and I think that's overused. Oh, nice. Although what cracks me up, I know this is very UK-centric at the minute, but um, X-Factor, have you noticed that when they do their kind of big musical number at the beginning where all of them are joined in you can absolutely hear the auto-tune kick in on every single person's voice and yet when they're doing their kind of individ- individual competing bits the auto is obviously flicked out
1: uh, it's no, really I,
0: very blatant
1: ah uh, no i hadn't actually that's a good uh, that's a very very good
0: point they did that Michael Jackson number last week and it was like, my God, you know, at least try and kind of turn it down a little bit. It was amazing. So they think they
1: can sing really well and they can't at all.
0: I think <laughs> it's the producers just covering their asses, you know, because if yeah. somebody gets a bit well, flaky...
1: It seems all about control, isn't it? So that is pretty well overused.
0: Completely.
1: Uh, uh, one thing that was interesting, again, there was a. Br- this seems to have been a week of brilliant documentaries. I think it was last, uh, at the weekend, there was a documentary about the Carpenters. And so there was lots and lots of Karen Carpenter's voice. And I have to say, it's really, really weird because Karen Carpenter's got the same sort of overtone and harmonic, which is amazing voice. I mean, you know, I can't fault it, but it has a quality to it that actually almost sounds like it has been auto-tuned because it's so perfect it's mm. really weird and it's almost like having too much cream in your coffee you know you can't you can only take so much of it because it's so rich and warm and well but it was a brilliant documentary if you're going be able to see it on the iPlayer I think um if you're in the UK based I'll see if I can find it on YouTube and, and post it in but um, that's another aside and it has nothing to do with anything really <laughs> I miss that it's a shame mm. great drummer Fantastic. yeah yeah
0: yeah mm.
1: so PJ how about you what do you uh, did you enjoy the video
2: I did. And, and along those same lines, uh, they also had uh, Weird Al Yankovic in that yeah. video as a, as a guest speaker. And he too has that same, that same resonance in his voice. You notice it uh, when he sings with himself. And you can go back to really, really early recordings of him, and he, he's very, very good at harmonizing with himself. And he gets that same kind of resonance in his voice where it sounds like he's being overcorrected.
1: It's funny, bit. isn't it? It's, yep. it? it's weird to think that humans who are so good start to sound artificial because we're so used to hearing it artificially done.
2: Yep, yep. Hmm. As far as the overuse of technology, uh, I can think of a couple, a couple that came to mind. Uh, musically, the
1: Korg M1. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but as I've said before, my entire musical career was based on the, uh, the Korg. Without the Korg M1, I would be... I wouldn't be where I am today.
2: Yeah, I had a I had a Korg M1 as well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think we all thought we were being incredibly original with the Korg M1, and uh, it just you can hear it, you can hear it everywhere. <laughs> I
1: know, I know, Rich doesn't agree, but interestingly, I don't know if I mentioned this at the time, but um, <laughs> I had to uh, recently I had to source a load of Korg M1 samples because when I did this recent documentary with uh, Scandinavian TV about Tom's Diner. I only had a certain number of things on the multitrack. I didn't have the piano, for instance, didn't have a couple of things. So I I had to kind of dub the piano back. So I got, I got the multitrack, what I had, transferred into, uh, into Logic, and then I found uh, somebody, I can't remember who it was now, uh, but I thank them very much for getting hold of, or pointing me in the right direction of the uh, M1 samples. And I remade it and played the piano part back onto the multitrack so that I could uh, kind of push the faders up and pretend that we were listening to the original. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) it did did bring back an awful lot of memories. It's like perfume, isn't it? When you smell something that's evocative, it's like when you hear the M1 piano, it kind of conjures up a whole bunch of memories from the time. I mean, I I don't know whether Rich would agree that they were all good, because I know you you find the M1 (laughs) deeply unpleasant.
3: Or the piano, perhaps. Just the piano, and Just, and it yeah. was a great instrument for its day. I understand its uh, place in in history, but as I said in the chat room, shoot me now. What about the DX7 <laughs> electronic piano, though? Oh the God, wit?
0: Dinky Pitty um, Hauser,
3: DX7 yeah. Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used it once. Uh, Horrible, <laughs> once. Horrible.
0: That really no, was like the first
3: time. The first time I used it, I liked it. Oh, uh, the first time. Yeah, it yeah. just come out. You'd never heard anything quite so tinkly and artificial sounding, and it was kind of fun for right. a minute there. Yep, and
2: then it spawned generations and generations of evil <laughs> evolutions of that particular road sound. It grew like a fungus. Yeah. It did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of icy fungus.
2: <laughs> yeah, an icy, mossy fungus on the north side of the musical tree. Ugh. Made out of saccharin.
3: Oh yeah! It just, it just so happens that that tinkly tiny stuff is what FM ha- does pretty well. So if you like your roads that tinkly and tiny, that's a way to do it. And it and it suited, it suited something. You know, it kind of uh, made something else in life surreal.
2: It suited Mike Post, that's for sure. Suited a lot of guys, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Right, suited Doogie Hauser. Yes. Yeah, that, Do, I think Doctor, that was it, was Post that
1: Doctor Doogie Howser? Why am I thinking about that? What yeah, yeah. I about? Doogie Howser, MD. What was MD. the theme tune? Electric piano, or did he play? Yeah, the electric? Yeah, yeah, it yeah.
3: had oh, I yeah. DX7 Rhodes on it, <laughs>
1: and I and I believe if I I'm going to have to take that. Out. Cr- that is
2: credited to Mike Post, although I believe you know at that point he had a staff of people working for him. So, wow. and <laughs> that sound that sound is used in a lot of his. Compositions, so it's it's yeah, it's interesting. Mm. throughout the late eighties. The other the other overuse of technology that came to mind is uh, cheesy three dimensional graphics. Ever since, uh, whew, you know, the very late nineteen eighties or early nineteen nineties, uh, after movies like The Abyss and videos like Michael Jackson's Black or White came out, right. we saw all kinds of you know morphing, and and now it, you can't you can't turn on anything from American Idol to Sports Center without seeing graphics flying all around the screen. Ah,
1: or, or indeed uh, Sonic State amped uh, guitar videos. Ah.
0: <laughs> 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 Which I have to say, he did
1: a fantastic job, the chap, Luca. Very, very, very pleased with that. But, we, you know, we just want to make sure our content can sit comfortably with, uh, with, with the mainstream. And oh, yeah, looks, absolutely. And it
2: cool. Absolutely. It's, a ne- it's necessary.
1: Hmm. I don't mind it. I quite like simple white text as well on black. But, it, you know, movement, you kind of... It's this. It's very interesting. I was watching something the other day, in fact. Uh, what was it? It was uh, Alan Wicker. Wicker's World. He was, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a, a kind of reporter who used to go all over the place. Fa- he famously went to interview Tom Tom Macout, uh the Papa Doc in in, in uh, is it he- he t- heighty, uh during that sort of time. And he, he just used to go off with the camera crew and make these kind of amazing documentaries. He, and there was a shot of him uh, in another thing. And it was just him walking along in front of a fence and the sh- uh, doing a monologue. And it must have been about 30-second shot. And I was looking at it thinking, God, you just would never get that anymore. There's just no- nobody can, A, you know, there's people who can't pull it off. And B, you know, we don't stand for uh, edits... That are less than six seconds, are longer than six seconds these days, and all that sort of that the way that our attention is is <laughs> brilliant uh, is taken by things like phone calls. I'll just go and grab that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, Sonic. As an aside, that's the first time I've ever seen uh, Weird Al Yankovic. I thought he actually looked like the person in the Eat It video. Really. <laughs> In real life, <laughs> hey, guess what? Do you know who that phone call
1: was? That was an automated robotic phone call from a bank. Can you believe that?
2: Uh, that's an overuse of technology, right there. Yes, right there. God, more oh. evil than
0: the DX Rhodes.
2: <laughs> Bringing up that uh, that that long uh, <clears throat> that long shot at the be- at the beginning of the video that you were talking about. I was just watching two nights ago. I was watching the movie The Player. Have mm. you ever
1: seen this film? Uh, I think so. Is that the one with? Um... Tim
2: Robbins is the main character, and and uh, Robert Altman made the movie. Uh, I'm
1: not sure. Yeah, he did lots of long shots, didn't he, Robert Altman?
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh! The beginning of this movie is a is a seven minute long shot where he's he's panning around a a film studio lot, zooming in through windows, but there's not an edit in sight. And and he's he's got a huge ensemble cast, you know. So he's he's moving from vignette to vignette, one long shot one long dolly
1: show. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because also when you think about it, I mean, certainly in the days of Wicca, I mean, they were filming on film. So if they screwed it up, they were in the middle of nowhere. And if they ran out of canisters, you know, that was it. Cause I mean, one of the things that in the, in the show that he's, because what he's doing is like a retrospective and he goes through various sort of interviews and things that he's done. And when he was in Haiti with uh, Papa Doc, um, they were invited to go Christmas shopping. And he was like, brilliant, this is a perfect uh, opportunity to get some really good footage, and they just ran out of film, and that was that, you know, Ah. (laughs) the end. (laughs) And, you know, that just wouldn't happen these days, you know. Um... I suppose this would be a good time to do an ad, really. I'd like to welcome our sponsor, the show sponsor, who are yamaha.co.uk. I was hoping to get these show notes from the new uh, November podcast, because they have a great uh, monthly podcast, which uh, I can thoroughly recommend you go and check out. Um, But they haven't haven't got it out quite yet. Uh, It's going to be out in a few days, I believe, but uh, unfortunately I couldn't get uh, any details of what's in the programme, so you'll just have to subscribe and check it out. But they generally have uh, interviews with key artists, latest product news, competitions and tutorials, and all things for all kinds of musicians. And it's not like a Yamaha Fest. It's actually very subtly done and a brilliantly produced radio show in its own right. So uh, well worth it if you're into that sort of thing. And also while you're at it, you could head over to uh, pick up a copy of their newsletter uh, where they also do some fairly good pre-release stuff uh, in terms of products that you don't hear in the news first. They generally it can get out to there a little bit early. So it's a good place to pick up uh, scoops if that be your shot, especially with Nam coming up. Uh, so if you want to check out all of this Yamaha stuff and... Um, let them know that we sent you. Uh, we've set up a landing page on Sonic State. It's sonicstate.com forward slash Yamaha, and you can click on the links there and go and visit uh, both the Yamaha Download podcast and also uh, the eShot newsletter that you can subscribe to. I'd subscribe at any time. It's all very uh, very properly done, so uh, they're not going to sell your name to anybody or anything like that. So uh, once again, we'd really like to thank uh, Yamaha.co.uk for sponsoring the podcast, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, a whole bunch of new products from them at NAM, I'm told. A little bird tells me. I don't know what they are. They uh, keep keeping it very close to their chest, but uh, be interesting to see what it is. So anyway, once again, we, uh, we thank them very much for their support. Okay, um, let me just flip back to uh, my show notes. Oh, yes. Have you seen the Motu hybrid interface? Do you see that? The new, uh, what's it called? The uh, Oh, God. Uh, I've forgotten what it's called now. Ultralight. Not- <laughs> Ultralight Mark III, which they've already done a Mark III, but this one's got both USB 2 and FireWire 400. Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, this is this is looking looking kind of quite tempting. It, but it's also got a whole bunch of DSP things on it, which I didn't know about. Which I'm trying to get a hold of one for review because I'd really like to check it out. It's got QMix effects. Uh, it's got ten input, fourteen bus mixer with onboard DSP effects, including reverb, sends, returns, EQ, compression. Uh, ten inputs yeah. Classic reverb, five different reverb types, three frequency shells with adjustable crossover points, two forms of compression conventional and a sort of leveller, which is a modelling, they say, of the LA-2A. Uh, Modelled EQ, seven-band parametric EQ. And I'm guessing all of this, you know, so it's it, this can work as standalone as well. So it can be, you know, at a pinch, a little compact mixer that you could set up programmes in, which could be really useful. And it's the same price as the previous model. I think it's 549 bucks, and I've seen it for 428 quid uh, on Digital Village. And um, I, I, I'm kind of Quite. Uh, I'd like to check one out. Does anyone, anybody, use Motu stuff here? No. Used to. Yeah. No. I, I have done. <laughs> people use it a heck of a lot live. I've seen an awful lot of rigs with Mac minis and laptops for for playing, um, uh, you know, uh, virtual instruments and what have you lives, Particularly in Logic or any other, you know, any other application, seems to be a very good because they're very their drivers. They've got they've got to be one of the longest surviving um, people who've written their own drivers for both of these technologies. So they're generally rock solid, aren't they? I mean, that's the one thing they have got going for them. I mean, they may not be, the, you know, the ultimate audio interface, but they work, and it looks like you get an awful lot of additional features in this, which I'd quite like to check out.
3: Well, people speak highly of the audio quality of these things.
1: They do a different source, don't they? I mean, they I think these do 24-bit 96, or maybe even higher. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, they do. They yeah. do a lot of
3: things. They're really, I mean, given size and cost, they're remarkable boxes, and it's, I think, a great thing that there's still an American company making some good hardware.
1: And, oh, and they do that um, voltage-lock stuff, so you can use it for for Volta, so you can actually control, send yep. CV at, in and out of it, which I believe we've talked about. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'm, I remember, because um, when I went to do the mix session for... Uh, Black Cherry, I think I think it was, or Supernature, the Golf Rap album. We went up to Spike Stent Studio up at Olympic, and he's got this SSL G Series 72 input. But driving it, there was a big quad uh, or eight core Mac with four 24 channel analog Motu boxes just going straight in. And that's what he used as his interface, straight in, you know, and that's what he mixed from. So, I mean, I'm guessing if he's using them, then they've got to be, you know, adequate for most needs, right?
2: Yeah. yeah, in a studio right. that I was in in the late 1990s, that was the way that we did it as well. We went uh, when we first set up, you know, our first 24 mix Pro Tools system. We uh, we were using those 888s and did not, you know, didn't didn't like the sound of those things. No, they, they didn't have. They it, didn't
1: sound so good, did they? The 888s. No, no. So uh,
2: since we weren't mixing a lot inside the computer and we we're using it pri- primarily for editing and that type of thing, we switched to to DP digital performer and went in through those 20 uh twenty four oh eights and the 24 eyes i believe yeah that's i think that's where
1: you got the analog ones that just got yeah 24 io on analog yeah
2: yep exactly so we we had uh four of those boxes and we were going you know out of uh, not that it made much of a difference at the time but we'd go either out of the adats through the twenty four oh eights and and the audio Quality was already compromised at that point, but uh, sure. sometimes we'd go directly into the computer through the 24i. It's the, and k-
1: the key so- is the drivers, isn't it? I mean, they just, uh, I mean, uh, you know, in my experience, they just work and they don't generally cock up, which, you know, certainly in high pressure situations, you don't want to happen, obviously. But, <laughs> but yeah. Hmm. Well, if anyone from Motu's listening to this, because every time I send an email, I never get a response, so if anyone's got a connection with Motu, get them to drop us a line, because I'd like to review one, because um, I'd like to see what they're all about, um, and then we can see whether or not my my uh, uh, enthusiasm is well-placed, I suppose is the, the way to look at it. Ah, the search for the perfect kick. Hmm. Uh, this came about because there's a, a new library out from Synplosive, uh, Deep Kicks 2, which is 500 samples, 24-bit. And uh, I've got a few examples here. I'll just play a few. Just uh, I don't know whether they'll come across over over the uh, airwaves. There you go. There's a few. I don't know if you can hear any bass in any of those. I can hear it quite well here. There we go. A selection of what sound like 909 <coughs> and uh, 808 kind of blends. But it got me thinking about the whole... Um, idea of, it used to be a real quest, didn't it? Didn't you have to kind of really, it was like the the, ser- the search for the perfect kick. I know when we were remixing, you know, it would be like, oh, I really want to get the right cu- the right kick, and the right kick, you know, when you found it, you'd sort of stick with it, and it was part of your signature sound. I don't know whether anybody else has kind of feels that same way, but it doesn't seem to be quite so important anymore. Or, or am I just, is it because I, I, I just, I haven't got my finger on the button? Dave. Mm. You've been I doing a lot know. of particular bits of different kind of music for your your uh, your labour of love album, love album. Yeah, um,
0: I don't know. It's the honest answer. In, I think it might be a generational thing because in my day it was bloody snares. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who could find the most expensive snare sound? Yeah, yeah, of course. Always going up a mountain and recording the reverbs and the (laughs) snare up a mountain and all those kind of mega stories. But this just, I mean, this is a great price, but it reminded me of that, you know, I've said it before, the days back at Martin Russian's place where the Sinclair had sort of 500 snares. and By the time you got to like the 30th one, you were like, so what was that first one like again? You do get kind of drum fatigue after about,
1: I don't know. Well, so how, how, what criteria do you use for selecting a kick? Then I mean, how do you kind of do you start with the one that you want, or do you kind of just write something and then think I need to change the sound of that? I mean, how do you how do you fit it together then?
0: Kind of depends what the criteria is. If the criteria is groove, then I'll assemble something where the where the groove is spot on or as spot on as I could make it. And then I'll live with that probably until mixed stage. And then I'll probably think, uh, maybe I could replace that. or Maybe I could add something to that to reinforce it or whatnot. Mm
4: -hmm. But
0: if it's uh, very much a kind of sonically based thing, if that's the essence of it, particularly with kind of techno stuff, then the original sound is kind of everything. So yeah, I will have to trawl through. I mean, I use RMX, uh, for most of my stuff because there's just a huge library of stuff in there it's all meticulously recorded and it just works for me is that that's pretty much the same thing that, that you find rich
1: as well
3: well in uh, i concur with everything dave said in particular with things that need to sound like they have a drummer playing i'll start with the drummer playing bit and then i'll supplement where needed i might accent certain kick hits with like low frequency you know kicks and stuff yeah. but but um but we, and again, as you said, with technoE stuff, I'll go to those kinds of things stylus RMX, I even have used boom the new digit design drum thing oh, yeah. on occasion. Um, almost anything that'll provide me with that sort of low-endy 8080 9090 thing that I want um, is fine doesn't really matter that much.
1: It's interesting. I mean, um, I recently reviewed, well, not that recently, I think it was in the summer, reviewed the Jomox M-Base 101, which is just a pure kick synthesizer. And that's, you know, got an enormous amount of stuff. I mean, it's still very, it's very sort of, well, it does, you know, all the big boomy things, but it does all these other things too. And it's quite interesting. I don't ever remember snare synthesizers. Do you know what I mean? I I suppose it's harder to do that. You know, pure snare, I suppose there must have been, you're going to tell me I'm wrong here.
3: Well, no, I was just watching that video. I mean, I don't want to forecast the next topic, but I was listening to some craft work this morning for some reason, and all of a sudden it was all these white noisy, you know, kind of snares coming out, you know, because they were making a amount of analog sense. Was they noise burst? It, yeah,
1: they do sound good. I like to use a bit of noise when I can get away with it.
3: And then, of course, there was the ubiquitous for a minute uh, Simmons bit when Simmons first came out, which are analog generated sounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's true. Noise based snare things.
0: Claptrap! So, that was overused, wasn't it? Yeah, oh,
1: then you no, go. No, no not used enough. In my in my point of view. I think we had one. We used one of those on a few things. PJ, <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of find that you deliberate over kicks, or is it not? Um, you know, I don't know how it works. Everybody does it differently, don't they? I can do. You know, it, it depends
2: on it depends on the project, and uh, I agree uh, philosophically with both Rich and Dave in that it kind of depends on what what it is you're attempting to do. Um, yeah, and sometimes sometimes when i'm starting a track either something that i know i have uh you know a complete control over meaning that a client isn't dictating what this track is being used for you know i might i might experiment a little bit lately i've been um working with you know synthesizing kicks more often um, than grabbing for a sample and what got me into doing that was just uh playing a couple of short samples on in the spectrosonics trilogy which is a, a base synthesizer uh, or base sample collection basically uh with synthesis capabilities um and uh, just hearing how great they sounded as as kicks and thinking oh yeah 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 i should go back and i should make some of my own so it's it's uh, you know it just kind of depends on what what the approach is for the piece
1: yeah, I, one of the things I discovered recently, uh, which is a nice trick, which is when you do um, to give a kick a little bit of an extra that high pass filter thing, where you just add loads of resonance and you sweep the high pass filter cutoff right down to kind of sub frequencies, and it just enhances that the, the low fundamentals of it. That's quite a nice way to uh, to make kicks bigger. Mm-hmm don't know if you've ever done that I think I I was doing it recently I think actually what I did is I was taking there were just some stock drum samples in uh, the Exs 24 which is Logic's sampler and you just flip a high pass filter in and whack up the resonance and then just tune it up and you get the sweet spot and then you drop the resonance back a bit and it's like having a very pinpoint sub-frequency accurate EQ and it just really brings it out can make it make a real difference to the sound Mm
0: -hmm. I'll try that that's great I still use the SDS-5 kick drum
1: Oh well, you've talked about that before, where it sort of blows holes in walls and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I guess it depends on your A to D and all of that stuff as well, though, doesn't it? You know. But I I remember when um, uh, people used to swear by running. You know, you'd have to run the kick live. You would never record the kick if you were doing a remix because it would just would never. You know, it would lose something in the in the printing process. So you'd always have to, you know, run the kick live as a MIDI sequence or whatever. Yeah, yeah. In hardware. And, you know, in terms of
2: kicks, I, I think I was I was thinking about this when you brought when you when I read the show notes. I'm thinking I'm sitting here building kicks for a project, and I am certain that any kick that I built. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but I'm almost certain that any kick that I could build, I probably have somewhere in my
1: sample collection. of. That's probably quicker just to make one.
2: It might be quicker, yeah, than to go search for it for sure. Because mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, you it, can do all I, that
1: thing where you you know you tag all your samples and it's like wait, But I I mean, who's got time to go through? No, but all I've literally to... got thousands and thousands
2: of well, kicks yeah, over, sure over several formats and several and several programs. Yeah, I mean, just my refills alone. I don't I don't know how many kicks I have in reason. And it, it yeah, I mean, there there are so many out there. And at some point, it's kind of like looking at the static on Channel Three and the chat and the static on Channel <laughs> 7. It's, it's all,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, I like Channel Three best.
2: Yeah, yeah channel,
1: <laughs> exactly. maybe could make a kick out of that somehow.
2: Yeah, yeah you probably could. Just
1: so um, here's another topic. Uh, this is uh, use your feet. Uh, this is the Logitee UMI3 USB controller, which is uh, basically a three pedal f- stomp box. Uh, that controls stuff over MIDI. You know, not necessarily that remarkable in its own right, but um, it sort of brought more focus to me because we also just finished shooting, and I think I published yesterday, the uh, the IK Multimedia Stealth pedal, which has a wah uh, treadle on it and, you know, allows guitarists to control amp simulators and what have you with their feet, you know, as they would with a normal pedal. And it got me thinking about, you know, how... Uh, we uh, do we use our feet enough? I mean, I guess Rich and um, uh, PJ, you're a piano players, so you're probably used to kind of a lot of pedal action in terms of the uh, the sustain and the damping. But um, you know, there there were there was a time when people would be uh, whacking away on the uh, organ bass pedals or the uh, torus or whatever, and I just wondered um, whether or not you utilise your feet in other ways than sustain, and whether you feel you could or should, Dave. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well you're a drummer so you got foot pedal. I suppose you got a bit of foot action you know naturally
0: yeah as long as you want sort of fall to the floor <laughs> no um, <laughs> I was quite I was, yeah I was slightly disappointed by this I thought somebody had recently asked me for a MIDI control foot you know like a like a Taurus pedal thing so I, I was kind of thinking oh yeah great 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 and then I went to it and had a look at it and thought ah okay this isn't what I thought it was um, but great for guitarists um, I haven't really played around too much with pedal stuff apart from when i got to play the mighty gx1 and that was just bombastic because you just had these obscenely low-end rumbles coming out of the thing and i'm sure everyone within a 10 mile radius was thinking what the hell is that um but yeah no i mean could do with using it a little bit more something like that
1: what do you do you not use them for kind of dropping in and you know, you know, punching record and stuff? Because I mean, back in the days of four track, you know, it was the done thing or the, the height of sophistication to have a foot pedal for your, for your to punch in and out with. No, nope. no, nope. never used it. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: <laughs>
1: Curses, PJ. What you mean
0: you could do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> PJ, do you uh, are you a foot person?
2: Uh, have been, uh, currently the only foot pedal that I have near me and use consistently is a sustained pedal. But in the past, I, of course, whenever, whenever playing a Hammond organ, um, I'll use either the, the volume pedal or, or the uh, rarely do I use the bass pedals because I don't usually find myself in, uh, it, it, at a gig where that's, that's, uh, required of me, but, um, I've hooked up MIDI volume pedals to get that kind of feel uh from my uh, VK seven. In the past I've used Wawa pedals with clavinets. Uh of course when I'm playing when with different bands. Yep. Gotta do that. And then uh <clears throat> back in the mid nineties I had a big pedal board set up for uh for my rig just because I got into running, you know, certain synth sounds through delays and flangers and
1: distortion pedals
2: and that kind of thing. And
1: it's a lot of fun. I've just as your head has just sent a link to a Behringer foot controller which is uh, fcb 1010 oh. And that looks amazing. That's got uh what's it got? 10, ten numbered foot foot switches like a kind of guitar uh, multi-effects pedal, two other ones which I guess are banks and also two treadles. And that's 220 bucks and it looks like it's it's all MIDI assignable, it transmits MIDI note on commands. Uh, it's got relay-controlled jack switches, so you can do amp and channel selections. Ten banks with, uh, what's that? Wow, integrated integrated power supply. Wow, that looks re- that actually looks really good. That's one of those kind of Behringer things that looks like uh, you know, could be very useful. Two hundred bucks. That's pretty cool. And two treadles. So, t- so I am guessing you can use that as expression pedals, which is really handy for synths, obviously. Mm. What's that yeah, called? Do, that's the like FCB the 1010. 10, 10. That's $219. I don't know what it is in. Oh, I can tell, can't I? Because they've got a quite a good site like that, haven't they? Uh, uh, or oh, 178 UK pounds. Well, that would be worth checking out. Mm. Thanks, your Head. See, the chat room interacts with the program. Don't forget, folks, sonicstate.com forward slash live, 4 pm on a Wednesday if you want to get involved and uh,
3: see what it can do. Do you use expression pedals, Rich? I've been spoiled. As a, young, as a young child, I learned to pedal the piano. And I did that for many, many years. And I never got good. Uh, I'm not very good with volume pedals. I was not very effective with a wah-wah. Um, I can sort of get through it, but I'm not. There are people who actually operate these things well, and I'm not one of them. So as it relates to me personally, now, as it relates to the particular product we're talking about, Which is basically three USB foot switches for 50 bucks. I think that's a really cool product. I think Mm. for some people who need to trigger individual events during a live show and don't have a big budget and don't need to have replaced Wawa pedals and do it, like in other words, this is a really cool thing for guys who only need to do a few things in a show. Yeah. And it only costs fifty bucks, and it looks like it's actually made pretty well. It looks like it's made out of real metal things. Now I'm not holding one in my hand, so I don't know. No, it could no, be a, I know it could saying. be a crappy piece of plastic, but it looks pretty good to me. So um, for me, this product is pretty cool. For some people, I don't do. I have a use for it not right now, but maybe I could. The only thing that
1: makes me nervous about things that are USB that you put on the floor is the other end is attached to something that's worth a great deal more than forty nine bucks. And one trip <laughs> slip or yank, and it's, uh, and either either end comes out or pulls some one or the other thing off God or forbid, breaks. You know, makes me. And that's the thing. The same thing with the IK Stealth pedal. It's brilliant. I mean, the case is amazing. I mean, it's a fully solid kind of. It's like a Crybaby wire pedal. I mean, it's incredibly solid, brilliantly chunky, and it would sort of encourage you to stick it on the floor, and maybe do it in a gig. But just the the, the fear of of it kind of just yanking, your, you know, when you're in the middle of a gig and you stomp on it or somebody trips over it and your computer goes flying, just, you know, you just think, <laughs> and how long, you know, was the? can you get, realistically get a USB cable? So you're going to have to have it quite close, so maybe I suppose if you had it on a, uh, the computer on a stand near you, it'd be okay, but I mean, if it's way back at the back of the stage,
3: is that going to work? I don't know. Yeah, it will, but it's a pain in the ass, I, I grant you that. They actually can do, there's plenty of people doing wireless MIDI. Um, can you, so you could probably do it that way, too.
1: Yeah, you could do it with the Behringer.
3: the USB to MIDI at the site of, you know, somewhere right around the pedal, and then send it as a wireless MIDI note.
1: Yeah, lots of points of failure for live, though. Yeah, probably Yikes. so.
3: Probably so. Now, is this Behringer thing? What do they connect this Behringer thing with? It's
1: MIDI. So it's, you know, it, it's MIDI. So, yeah. I think, you, but I So mean, yeah,
3: you could do the same thing by getting a MIDI box, but that sort of defeats the $50 point. So I get you. I get you.
1: So Nick,
2: with with the stealth pedal, yeah. you, you've looked at you've looked at this technology. The yeah, IK. Is it is it controlling its software via MIDI, or is it higher resolution?
1: It's MIDI, MIDI control. Uh, I believe I'm not sure if it actually interfaces directly with the uh, X Gear software in another resolution, but I'm pretty sure it's just standard MIDI resolution. But that's okay. kind of. I didn't hear any stepping or anything. It seemed to work quite well. Although, you know, we didn't do very, very slow kind of uh, sweeps like that. But it was it was definitely worked well. And the fact that it's integrated is is really cool. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds all right. It's, you know, it's one of those things that works all right. And it's not a bad price. Because if you buy the deluxe version, um, you, what is it, which is about 369 quid, about $450, you get Amplitude 2 full version in it, which costs not much less than that anyway but so you get a free audio interface effectively okay well uh, we can't put it off any longer it has to be the i i I would call this the topic of the day this is the uh, the brilliant crouch rock documentaries here they come
4: actually i don't have so much memories because that time i was quite stoned that's it (laughs) 30
0: kilometres north of Cologne on the Autobahn lies Dusseldorf, the Liverpool to Cologne's Manchester. Dusseldorf would give the world Germany's greatest act, but in 1970 you might not have recognised them. This is Kraftwerk's first televised performance. It features Florian Schneider and Ralph Hütter, two classical music students who form the creative nucleus of the band.
1: That was, uh, I was listening to, the, I listened to, the, I watched the whole thing this morning, and uh, that just so happened, uh, first of all came that brilliant quote, which was the uh, lead singer of Can, who just says, I can't remember anything, I was really stoned, which seems to be a recurring theme amongst uh, many of the Krautrock rock musicians of the period, <laughs> and, um... <laughs> it's true and then immediately followed by that really quite interesting and sort of it's like flute beatboxing from uh, Florian Schneider as part of the Kraftwerk uh, thing who and they you know they were very much closely linked to the whole krautrock movement and the krautrock thing is obviously a moniker that was given to them by uh, UK music press, yeah. I believe. Not, uh, not
3: by Germans. No, I don't believe so.
1: That, But they were uh, – what was really – I mean, I just thought it was a brilliant documentary. And it was – it's another one. Um, it was a BBC4 one, and it was by the same guys who made Synth Britannia. In the same way that Synth Britannia did uh, uh, quite a lot of social history and background, there was quite a lot of that in this. And it was really fascinating because I didn't know a whole bunch about what was going on in post-war Germany. I mean, I didn't realize a number of things. And it was just a real, yeah, really interesting. But I, 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 I just, um, yeah, I thought it was great, and I really, really enjoyed uh, every second of it. And and I didn't realize quite how many flavors and you know what good tracks were there were from other bands. You know, I'd, I'd never heard of Faust, I'd never heard of Harmonia or Cluster. You know, there's quite a lot. Uh, I, I've heard of Can, mm. um, but yeah, brilliant. Mm. But there were some great moments in it. Uh, did you see Klaus Schulze uh, with the V-Synth and the EMS? Uh, AKS. Yeah. And he said, I have this more than 30 years, but I could never create the same sound two times. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a brilliant admission it's from you know, yeah, of nice. one of the fathers of synthesis. You know, it's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. I don't know, where do you start? It's just super. I don't know if they've got any more in production, but I do hope so. I mean, I imagine they're quite tired after making these because it must have taken a hell of a lot of research. I can't imagine just the music clearance department's job in a, in making a documentary like this, what it must've been
3: like. Can you even, can you even find the people who own that stuff? Well, a lot of it apparently was signed to Virgin, which was maybe, but perhaps not, not now a, right? into perpetuity and B for all the world. Right. Yeah. 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 I suppose. In other depends. words, back in those days, you had a different deal with the American people as you had with the English people, as you had with the main, the continental European people. And, and, uh, I I don't know anything about any of their deals, obviously, and probably most of them don't either. But uh, <laughs> but the, 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 as regarding clearances, you first you got to figure out who owns this stuff. You know, if anybody does, or if you can find them. Sure. But but uh, while I'm while I'm on a roll, uh, I watched the entire thing and enjoyed it immensely, and it put a lot of things into context and as, uh, historically, as with you, Nick, um, in terms of the post-war, um sort of what happens after something like that and how do you recover from that and what happens to entertainment and what are the responses and uh how it all incorporated into the 60s thing
1: oh it's just amazing there was so i mean that one thing that i don't know if you picked up on but there was uh i forget which guy was talking about it i think it might have been edgar Froze freezer from tangerine dream and he was saying that basically uh goebbels put an enormous amount of money. He was the minister for propaganda uh, during the Mm. war. And he put an incredible amount of money shaping the German entertainment and music and record industry. I mean, I I think he was, you know, there's famously, you know, the Neumann microphones and all that. But as a result, all of the stuff that uh, was coming out uh, in the, uh, the 40s, 50s and early 60s was this stuff called Schlagerpop was it Schlager music, which was really yeah. inoffensive, very, very sort of straight kind of uh, handsome young men in, uh, with, with, with smart suits and, and small hair, kind of singing kind of very dross-like music to TV on was very light, uh, easy-listening, light entertainment. Yeah. And uh, that, was, that was really fascinating to just sort of think, oh, well, actually, you know, you forget that things just don't stop. You know, the same people that were involved in, you know, the stuff that was happening before – you know, they weren't all killed. They were, some of them were still, you know, the people in the recording studios were obviously trained, you know, it's just really interesting to kind of think about those things. It was just absolutely fascinating.
3: There's something about Goebbels and some sort of cheesy Bill Graham figure that's hard for me to swallow, but, but I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw that mm-hmm. uh, and the Schlager stuff. And this was a reaction to, and some level it was a reaction to that as well as to other things. And there was interesting, their focus on not being like the English or the Americans.
1: Yeah, they wanted to a lot, lot of different
3: guys. A lot of different guys made that point along the length of the thing, and uh, yeah. it clearly, and you can see them struggling to create something truly original. And uh, it, it's sort of exciting on that. You see, on, on one level, it brought together. I had heard all of these bands at one time because I had a friend who was into all of this stuff, and he played me all these bands. And very few of them interested me when he played them for me. But now, seeing it all in context and understanding it more. Through the through the help of this documentary, I actually enjoyed some of the bands that I hadn't enjoyed when I was played them back back in the early seventies, for example. Right. So uh, it was really helpful to me, and it kind of put. You see, I kind of got on board uh, with all of this through Eno and Eno and Cluster, and then the Bowie albums, you know, the trilogy of Low, Heroes, and uh, Lodger, and that's how I sort of became aware. Of some of this, I was also into Tangerine Dream before that and some other things, but mostly I didn't get it in context. And so this really was
1: cool for me. That was fascinating, wasn't it? The bit about um, when Eno basically went, he went to a gig, uh, I think it was it Cluster or Faust, one of, or Harmonia, one of the kind of spin-offs. Harmonia. Harmonia. He, Harmonia. he went to Harmonia, and then he sort of said, oh, can I come and see you sometime? And then he went down and spent like two weeks in their, in their, in their uh, uh, country mansion where they'd been recording. And it looks like they still had the setup, which was brilliant, because they were shooting the same guys there now, they, this giant mansion that they'd obviously just kind of I don't know how they'd afforded it, but it was still theirs. And he basically learned... Because they were learning... They were using all of this amazing synthesizer gear because they'd been given a load of money to essentially become the German Beatles. Was that what... Yeah. and so they, they had like ARP twenty five hundreds, they had all of this stuff all of these kind of incredible synthesizers that they'd learn how to use in a really experiment they, I don't think they were really on the same mindset as the Beatles they were much more experimental and, and I think Eno went down and kind of basically picked their brains and uh, presumably figured out what they were using and how they were using it a bit and because uh, at one point the, the guy actually says yes I think um, Eno was learning from us we weren't learning very much from him <laughs>
3: Well, well he said. Pointed. He said. they said <laughs> when he got here he really didn't know what he was doing wow they actually said that yeah <laughs> wow, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, he'd already made you know be- i think before and after science in another green world by then uh, yeah, I mean, i'm made- not
1: sure that yeah i think there must be a little a tinge <laughs> of bitterness in there somewhere that no i trying- don't
3: know about that but it's just interesting to hear them say that i'm not accusing them of bitterness i don't really know where it comes from but one of them was <laughs> said because it was 74, I think, when he saw Harmonia and he didn't come to them for another two years, which was around 76. So, and he did some significant work before 1976. <laughs> That's it amazing. That, God, he really didn't know what he was doing. Was Maybe like, he didn't wow. know much
1: about synthesizers there. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know, Dave, did you enjoy this? I
0: thought it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I look forward to the next one. What would it be? What would it be? I don't know. It'd probably be something really obscure, wouldn't it? But like, um, the history of music. polka, <laughs> Schlager music, yeah, yeah, with polka. Um, yeah, no, really fascinating. And we, I've ended up, you know, on a chat this morning with um, Peter, who's a good friend of mine, who's from Germany, and uh, he came out with something we were sort of kind of discussing because I was like a load of museo friends of mine, and we've always had this discussion about how uh, when with cultures or cu- countries that feel particularly oppressive, that that's where the true creativity comes from. That's where the true art kind of emerges from, uh, almost out of desperation. And I was really fascinated by this idea of a lot of these crowd rock bands trying to get away from this 12-bar structure, which I wholeheartedly endorse, and adopting this kind of linear approach to music, you know, kind of f- as free of conventions as you could be. Uh, and it was quite interesting because Peter said that... Uh, Yes, um, me and my friends have often talked about this. And the one thing we've agreed on is that only Huns can do real kraut rock. <laughs> and I think he might be true. I think he might be true. and Maybe that's the reference to Eno. That Eno was probably trying to intellectualise the whole thing, whereas actually it was you don't say. more fundamental and deep than that. Interesting, yeah. though. It's
1: interesting, so interesting much- that what you say about synthesizers in oppressive society, I suppose, because you can do it on headphones, can't you, really? So you, nobody, you can sort of do it without being heard
0: it's yeah i mean it's just interesting you know music in the 70s i mean the uk was pretty oppressed during the 70s and stuff and you had an awful lot of energy kind of break out of that as a result Mm. um and i can understand you know in in germany at that time people just wanted to get away from the past and just try something really new and exciting and just break all of these rules i'd love to have been around at that time i really would i think i'd have got been there in a nanosecond i mean there were so many good quotes i mean that uh, yeah. the drummer uh, jackie liber's when he said you know he's, he was the full full jazz drummer at the time and the guy comes up to him completely straight and says you must play more monotonously just brilliant and the thing i mean holger Zuke, from my perspective is complete legend. And I love that bit about him trying to marry a rich woman in Switzerland. Um, The the quote that I love is that David Niven being at that can gig, and being asked, what do you think of this music? And he said, oh, it was great, but I didn't think of it as music. <laughs>
1: or was it music? Yeah. I didn't realise it was music. <laughs> There's just tons of it. I mean, and then Tangerine Dream came to Coventry Cathedral because there was a real fixation with the, the, the Germans are coming and all that stuff. And uh, it was, Edgar uh, Ferreira <laughs> said, you know, they played, because what happened is they did a couple of gigs in Germany at uh, Catholic uh, churches, and it sort of was one was didn't go very well for some reason and they got a letter from um the Vatican saying you know as a result of this uh, this gig you were we, we, you're banned from all catholic churches worldwide you can't play one. so they get a letter from the the uh, the the anglican dean deacon in uh, in the uk saying hey i've heard you've been banned from catholic churches you can play <laughs> in any of our churches any time so as a result they came over and did a gig in coventry cathedral which by uh, looked like it was filmed and it was quite interesting and uh, he said yeah i was in the hotel you know and i got up in the morning and i looked at the headline and it said uh, there was a picture of my face and it said First, they came to bomb the place. Now they come with synthesizers, and I, that just that would make such a great poster, wouldn't it? I mean, that's just God, oh wow. Better
3: than that, I want that letter. I yeah. want a letter hey. from the Pope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> saying
1: you're banned. you from the church. Playing your I music in our church. I I'd
3: frame that. I'd frame their letter and put it on the wall. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was
1: just so thought provoking in so many ways, and you know, I, I think it was more interesting because a lot of it didn't have a resonance with anything I knew. So it was all it was all completely new. And dis- it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I know this song. And so it was re- – I just thought it was great, absolutely great. And uh, uh, as we say, it's actually on YouTube. I made a playlist together, which uh, if you get the link from the show notes, it will play consecutively so you don't have to keep going and looking for stuff, So, uh, uh, um, which is one of the cool things that you can do with YouTube. You can create a playlist and it will just play end-to-end. And it's very well uploaded so you don't get any gaps. Uh, so yeah, brilliant. Uh, uh, PJ, did you, did you enjoy it? You know,
2: unfortunately I didn't get a chance to watch it. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't well, get down to the end, but you know, on the, on the topic of, of music coming out of, out of oppression, it's, it's interesting that Dave brings that up because I, I was thinking about that recently and it seems to me that there's been a, a ton of fan, uh, well, at least a lot of notable fantastic musical movements that seem to have grown out of that. I mean, Amer- American jazz, could be one of them and, uh, mm. and some people seem to think that it's jazz being kind of the
1: uh yeah i the, guess i have the, segregation and, yeah
2: yeah the eminent you know american art form and then uh romantic music coming out of napoleonic u- europe and uh yeah i mean yeah, there's yeah, yeah. Hot and, and how uh you know and and uh in the the german electronic movement that was happening in the 70s seems to be just the complete antithesis of everything else that was going on music you know popularly musically mm. at the time
1: uh, the, there was oh, the, i've just reminded me of another quote i don't know where this, why this came out but uh, there was i forget which member of carfork said that uh, uh, uh florian and ralph were were both really wealthy. The children came from wealthy homes, so they had, like, they had 1,000, Southern Deutschmark shoes. <laughs> and he was very fixated about their handmade shoes, which they all got to wear. <laughs> Interesting. Now, well, there's tons of it. Did I ever tell the story about when I got to, where we got, um, we nearly got a and by uh, the Vatican? What? No. We did, a, a, a back when we were doing loads of remixes, we kind of got, it wasn't, well, it wasn't that long ago. It was in, sort of, probably, uh, late 90s. Uh, and we did a couple of remixes. We did remix uh, uh, the theme from uh, Titanic, and you know various other sort of classical. We kind of got given these these various things, and then suddenly we did some choral music uh, as well. And I did some Gregorian some uh, some uh, of that chant uh, music, which I'm terrible. I'm fishing for the names of the artists, but anyway. So we get asked to do some ch- some religious music. And this comes down from, there's seven cardinals below the Pope, right? And uh, this came from that office, apparently. They said, you know, would you be interested in contributing to an album of uh, char- religious chant, sort of remixed in a popular style? It will be on the Vatican's own label. And uh, so we sent them a demo. So my, my line is, uh, uh, that makes it three down from God listened to uh, one of my demos. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. We didn't get the gig. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway. That's really got nothing to do with anything apart from the Pope. But I have, I'd like to get that letter. I don't know if we ever got a rejection letter, but I just remember getting the call saying, no, it didn't work out.
0: This is uh, not what the Pope's looking for right yeah.
1: now. I'm sorry, the Pope is, yeah, is, is is looking for something slightly more mainstream or whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> Nick, had you, had
2: you remixed Enigma? Is that, is that who you... No, we didn't
1: remix Enigma. We probably did some remixes in the style of Enigma, but oh. I, I don't think we actually remixed any uh, any Enigma uh from what i, know I remember
2: they, were, they had that popular we
1: did Philippa Giordano, uh which was uh a, a tune from um carmen which was really difficult actually because <laughs> it was all over the place time signature wise and all over the place tempo wise and uh that what was the other things that we did yeah some various other ones i forget the, the bulgarian voices the voire bulgare we did a few of those uh, and uh what yeah. else was it um, I I forget now. I mean, it's it's there was a bunch of other ones. So
2: that's, the Bulgarian voices, that's hard. Oh, it's
1: beautiful. Yeah, I know. I think we did um, Berber, uh, a, a composition by Berber. Um, I forget again. One with the really really high, the really really high high C choir boys stuff, which was beautiful actually. Which we just sort of I put like widdly synths all over it with loads of delays and some break beats. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's what they wanted. <laughs> I, I'm not cool. ashamed. Super. <laughs> if I'd done anything yeah. more musical, they would have rejected it anyway. So anyway, um, well, I, I suppose on that uh, religious note, uh, we could probably call it uh, call it a, a day and uh, a King Sunny a day, as Rich is very fond of me saying. I haven't got a King Sunny a day clip to play you. Maybe I'll have to try and clip one in uh, later on to sort of maintain it. But uh, thanks for all the suggestions about kind of trying to increase the audience last week. Uh, I've now uh, post. I've posted the show notes before the show i put it out on twitter and put it in the chat room at various points so yeah we work on it but thanks every everybody in the chat room for joining us uh it's been a real real fun week again as usual uh, uh again if you didn't make it this week uh, next week sonicstate.com forward slash live at 4 p.m uk time is uh, is where you'll find us here hanging out and um and doing what we do, uh, and also thank you very much to my local guests, who are, well, not so local. I guess we're we're fifty fifty, aren't we? There's there's me here in Sonic Towers, and uh, of course Dave Spears from G4Software dot com. Thank uh, you for joining us, and yeah, great. Um, yeah, I hope your ear gets better, and I hope this hasn't aggravated it anyway with any of the sound clips I've been playing you.
0: I'll go for a lie down later.
1: Yeah, sounds like a I'm going to go and enjoy my new sofa. I think I'll sit on the other one tonight. Oh, I've got to edit the podcast. (laughs) Never mind. Damn, I can't do that. Anyway, that chuckle there you heard was uh, Rich Hilton.
3: Always good. Much enjoyed.
1: Thank you also for joining us again this week, Rich. I hope you're having a good, fun, creative and enjoyable studio week, as is your want. I am. Good. Glad to hear it. And uh, PJ Tracy, uh, also joining us, PJTracyMusic.com. Thank you, PJ.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Nick. It's, it's always so much fun.
1: Glad you could make it. And I um, want to say uh, to Chris, uh, get well soon. And also uh, anybody else who's suffering from the winter lurgy at the moment. Seems to be a lot of people. Hands as well. Uh, Non-Eric is uh, not feeling too hot at the moment. So I hope you all feel better soon. So uh, that was Sonic Talk number 154. It's a wrap. I'm going to play out with some Crite Rock. I'll surprise you. I don't know which one it's going to be yet. You'll just have to wait and see.
4: Yeah.